Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here today, whether you're joining us in person or if you're online. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff, and today is the penultimate Sunday in our series on the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, they really don't leave anything untouched. In this series, we've talked about family, we've talked about murder, we've talked about sex. If you've seen it on a soap opera, we talked about it during this series. And our hope has been that we can come to an understanding of just how relevant and important these 10 pieces of wisdom are. These aren't just a bunch of antiquated rules that God made up to ruin our fun. No, the 10 commandments were given to us to free us to live the type of good and joy-filled lives that God wants for us. And today we're going to see how this is true in the ninth commandment. But before we do that, let's just take a minute to pray together. God, we're thankful for another chance to come and to sing you praise and to dig into your scriptures. Lord, our prayer today is that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see your words. Lord, we also pray for those of us who are needing some special help this week. We're thinking of some of our church family members who are awaiting tests. Give them comfort and peace during this time. Think of our different family members in the church who are grieving Walk with them. Help your presence be known. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. So what is the ninth commandment? If you grew up going to Sunday school or vacation Bible school or a Christian preschool like I did, you were probably given the chance to memorize the ninth commandment as, you shall not lie. I mean, that's um, what my preschool teacher told me when I claimed that I didn't know how the cool red matchbox car with yellow flames ended up in my pocket. She said, James, thou shall not lie, but you shall not lie is actually not what God commanded to Moses. Instead, in Exodus 20:16, what God actually told Moses is, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now, if you're a kid in here or you're watching online with your parents and you're sitting at home thinking, hey, Pastor James just said it's okay to tell lies. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. The Bible has a lot of places that teach us that lying is not compatible with his way of life. But this commandment, the ninth commandment, teaches something more specific than simply don't lie. So let's take some time and pull apart the ninth commandment. First, we need to ask the question, what does it mean to give false testimony? Well, the Israelites, they had a judicial system that was totally based on witness testimony. If a a person was accused of a crime, for that person to be declared guilty would require some people to come forth and give an account of what they saw. So the judge would take those witnesses' testimony see if they lined up, see if they made sense, and would then use those testimonies to determine the innocence or guilt of the person. So testimony about others was the fulcrum that the judicial system pivoted on. The problem with this was that you could get a crafty person with bad intentions who would go out and find other people to support their side of the story, and it could result in a corruption of justice. So say your cow died and you didn't want to bear the cost, the cost of that dead cow, 
Well, you could go and find a few friends. You could get your story straight. You could go to court, blame your neighbor for the death of that cow, and voila, an injustice has occurred. In their judicial system, giving false testimony was when someone would give a testimony that was either totally false or phrased in such a way that purposefully cast doubt on the innocence of that other person. So in the ninth commandment, that language of the judicial testimony, it's broadened to apply to life beyond the judicial structure to where God is basically saying to the Israelites, hey, your words, they have the power to build up or destroy. Don't use your words to damage people by saying stuff about them that's misleading, false, or unwarranted. So basically, giving false testimony against your neighbor is to speak about them in a way that sows the seeds of doubt, communicates what's untrue, or communicates what's only partially true in a way that damages or harms them. So, for example, if I was angry at Pastor Laura because it's more fun to volunteer with kids than it is to serve coffee on Sunday mornings, and people were wanting to volunteer more with her than with me, and I started telling people, well, you know, I heard that Pastor Laura kicked a baby last week. (laughs) That's false testimony. I know it's not true, but I say it anyways because I want to damage her reputation in order to gain more volunteers for me. Like I said before, false testimony, it's to speak about someone in a way that sows the seeds of doubt, communicates what's untrue, or communicates what's only partially true in a way that damages or harms that person. And so to help us think more deeply about what it means to give false testimony, we're going to look at a strange story that shows up in our Bibles at the end of the book of 1 Kings. But before we get into that, we need a little bit of the context. The books of 1 and 2 Kings, they give us a snapshot of the political, social, and religious history of the Israelite people after the reign of King David. You see, King David, he was considered to be a great king of Israel. Granted, he was super dysfunctional and did a whole lot of stuff that makes us cringe and groan, but for the most part, he tried to keep his people following the ways of God. The problem was that after his reign ended, the Israelites started down a path of self-destruction. Civil war ended up splitting Israel into two nations. You had Judah in the south and Israel in the north, And while there were a few good kings after David, for the most part, the more time that passed after David, the worse the kings became and the more they led the people of God astray. And so by the the end of the um, first kings, we're introduced to a guy named Ahab, who ascended to the throne after his father Omri had died. Now Ahab, his dad Omri, was like a bad mamma He ascended to power in a way that was kind of awful. You see, for a while, there was a king of Israel named Elah. Elah wasn't a super good leader, so one of his officials, a guy named Zimri, plotted against Elah, killed him, and took the throne for himself. And after taking the throne, Zimri systematically executed every male in the bloodline of Elah. Now, Zimri, 
he only reigned in Israel for seven days because the people of Israel, they didn't like how he had violently seized the throne. So they rallied behind a local warlord named Amri and laid siege to Zimri's palace. Amri, he kind of kicked the mess out of Zimri and then killed him. And then there was a power vacuum. Who should have the throne now? Well, half of Israel rallied behind this warlord Amri, and the other half behind another warlord named Tibni. Fighting lasted a little while, but eventually Tibni was killed by Amri, and Amri seized the throne and became king. Now, why do I tell you this? Well, this is what life was like in Israel. Warlords constantly fighting for the chance to become king. And the mere fact that Ahab's dad, Amri, lasted long enough in power to be able to pass the reign down to his son means that Amri was one tough, violent son of a gun. He was not a nice, merciful, just, or godly ruler. He was the kind of leader who would have no problem kicking a baby. So it's crazy that when we're introduced to Ahab, Amri's son, 1 Kings describes him this way. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Amri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Amri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Can you imagine that? Amri, Ahab's dad, was not a good dude. He literally had to kill off two other warlords and wage a brutal war to rise to power. And in that nasty warlord-laden environment, he reigned 12 years before dying naturally and passing the throne on to his son. He was a rough and tough guy. But Ahab, Ahab son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those who came before him. This is a super important detail because it sets the stage for the political, social, and moral context of our story. This is a time period in Israel that was as bad as it gets. Things were terrible. Violence, oppression, social unrest. Ahab ruled in such a way that brought absolute chaos and misery to the people of Israel. He was the worst ruler that they had seen so far. And towards the end of the stories about Ahab in 1 Kings, we encounter this one. It says, Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. 
So basically, you've got Ahab, and he notices that there's a vineyard really close to his palace, a beautiful vineyard. And he thinks to himself, wouldn't it be nice if I could add that vineyard to my palace estate? So he goes to the owner, a guy named Naboth, and Ahab says, hey, I'll pay you for your land, or if you like, I'll just give you another vineyard. And Naboth says, no, this is my ancestral home. This place has significance to me. It's mine. It was my father's before me. And his father before him, I'm not going to give it to you. So what does Ahab do? Well, he goes home and he throws a pity party for himself until his evil genius wife comes to find out what's wrong. This is verse 4. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I'll not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in his place. But he said, I'll not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting, and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and the nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up, went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Now, the first question that I want us to ask about this story is this. Out of all of the bad stuff that Ahab undoubtedly did, why did the compilers of 1 Kings choose to include this story? 1 Kings, it sets up Ahab as the culmination of the decay of Israel. He is the worst ruler they have seen, and as a result, the state of the Israelites is as bad, if not worse, than it's ever been. Guaranteed, he did so much bad stuff that is never included in 1 Kings. So what's interesting is that out of all of the terrible stuff that he undoubtedly did, the compilers of 1 Kings chose this as the culminating example of his abject morality. Most of the terrible stuff in 1 Kings that it mentions about Ahab is really just kind of glossed over. For example, in the chapters prior to this, we learned that Ahab married a pagan wife and worshipped pagan gods. We see his attachment to his pagan gods in the standoff between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. 
And we get a couple of very brief mentions that Ahab and his wife were working hard to find and kill all of the Lord's prophets. But at no other place in the stories of Ahab do we get quite as long or as detailed of a treatment of his wickedness as we get in this passage. It just begs us to ask the question, why is this the story the compilers of First, and, of First Kings chose to include about the wickedness of Jezebel and Ahab's personal life? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is definitely this. False testimony is not to be taken lightly because it always destroys community. The authors of 1 Kings chose an example that is meant to help us see that the social fabric of the Israelite society was unraveling. And in many ways, nothing unravels that social fabric quite like false testimony does. False testimony destroys community. Trust, it can't survive with false testimony. Justice, it can't survive with false testimony. Interpersonal relationships, they have no chance when you're always wondering who's going to make something up about you or pervert your words and actions in order to ruin you for their own gain. False testimony ruins community. Just think about the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. God, he created Adam and Eve, and he gave them a job and a paradise to do it in. Life was so good. But then comes this mysterious and deceptive person referred to as the serpent. This is Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. What's happening here? Well, to put it simply, the serpent comes in, and he gives false testimony. He says, hey, I heard that that God guy you think is so great told you that you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden. Is that true? To which Eve says, no, that's not true. He told us we could eat from any of them, just not the one in the middle. And if we eat from that one, we'll die. To which the serpent basically says, hey, God's not telling you the truth. You're not going to die. Instead, you'll become like him your eyes will be opened. The serpent character, he's no dummy. He weaves together a series of untruths and partial truths that are meant to damage God's reputation in the minds of Adam and Eve so that they'll do what he wants them to. And it works. This is verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. You see, Adam and Eve ate the fruit, and just like the serpent said, their eyes were opened, but not in a good way. Instead, it's in a way that caused their relationship with God to be fundamentally changed. They were now afraid of him. And not only that, but their relationship with each other was about to fracture as well. This is verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. What was once a perfect relationship between Adam and Eve was now filled with blaming and shifting of responsibility. Adam says, she told me to do it. Eve says, what do you mean she told me to do it? This is the serpent's fault. Adam says, God, you put Eve here, so isn't this your fault? Their community falls apart bit by bit. And you know what? It all started with some false testimony. The serpent's false testimony caused relationships to fracture. The relationship between God and humans, the relationship between human and human, they broke down under the weight of the doubt and half-truths that the serpent whispered in their ears. Here's the deal with false testimony. Maybe more than any other of the Ten Commandments, false testimony destroys community. I'm sure you can think of a zillion examples that you've seen in your own life. But false testimony, it always ruins community. Let's get back to Ahab and Naboth and pick that story apart a little bit more. Think about this situation with Ahab. He's at his palace. He's wandering around. He looks out at the next property and he says, My stars, that's an impressive vineyard. I'd love to own that piece of land and turn it into an amazing vegetable garden. It would be so peaceful. It could provide me with some tasty produce for my lavish parties. I could walk through it in the morning and do my morning devotions to Baal. So he goes to Naboth and he asks Naboth to sell it. Ahab, he's willing to pay for it. Or if Naboth doesn't want to buy a new vineyard and start fresh again, Ahab is willing to find him another better vineyard to have. But Naboth, he doesn't want to give it up. This is his family's property. They're intimately connected to the place. This is home. Check out the way Naboth responds to Ahab. He says, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. A big piece of this is that this is Naboth's ancestral land. It means something to him. But notice he also says, The Lord forbid that I should give you you, the inheritance of my ancestors. This is like a slap in the face to Ahab. Naboth is saying, the Lord God gave my ancestors this land, and by golly, 
I'm not going to give it up to some pagan king who has led us into the worst years that we've seen this side of the promised land. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So you've got two things happening with Ahab. First, he begins to experience discontentedness. He sees Naboth's property and he feels like things just aren't the way they should be in his life unless he can get a hold of Naboth's land and turn it into a super dope vegetable garden. Secondly, he gets offended by Naboth's response. I mean, Naboth basically flips Ahab the ancient Israelite bird and tells him to get out of his yard. (laughs) So let's pause and think about this. Because what's happening to Ahab is actually a pretty common experience for most of us. We experience a, a level of discontentedness. Maybe it's the way that your boss handled the situation at work. Maybe it's the way a leader at your church handled something. Maybe it's the way that your neighbor keeps up their yard. Whatever it is, something is happening between you and someone else that leaves you feeling like things are just not the way that they should be. So you go and you do something about it. You confront your boss. You have a meeting with that leader at church. You chat with your neighbor. And the response that you get leaves you feeling off-put, dismissed, maybe even offended. You feel like things aren't the way that they need to be. You do something about it, and the response you get leaves you feeling offended. This has happened to me. I'm pretty sure it's happened to you. If it hasn't, I'm pretty sure it will at some point in time. And this is the situation that Ahab finds himself in. So what does he do? He goes home and he sulks. Verse 4, Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I'll not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Now before we make fun of Ahab for being a bit melodramatic, uh, let's be real, we've all done this. We might not refuse to eat, but we go home and we stomp around the house. We sigh more than any human reasonably should sigh. We slam the cupboards when we put away the dishes and make really grumpy, exasperated faces at everything. And when our spouse says, hey, you okay? We say, I'm fine. I just had a bad day. I know you know what I'm talking about here. (laughs) Well, that's what Ahab does. And his wife, she comes in and she says, why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answers her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. And he said, I'll not give you my vineyard. And this is where our story goes down a bad path. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I will get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting. Seat Naboth in a prominent place, but seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king, and then take him out and stone him to death. And exactly what Jezebel wants to happen, happens. This is verse 11. The elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed. They 
excuse me, proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him, brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel, Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up. Take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Now don't let the extremeness of this situation stop you from seeing yourself in it. We might not publicly destroy the reputation of a person so that they get killed and we can take their land. But the thing that is happening here happens all of the time in different ways. Your boss doesn't do what you want, so you start to say things that are unfounded or only partially true about them so that your workmates lose confidence in the boss. Something doesn't go the way you want to at church, so you start talking to everyone else about how unhappy you are with the leadership and how many problems there are. Why? Because you want people to get a feeling like things are actually worse than they are and they need to change in the way that you think they should. Or you have a workmate or an acquaintance or a neighbor who drives you crazy. So when others start to gossip about them, you gladly join in because you don't really care what happens to their reputation. We might not do exactly what Ahab and Jezebel did, but using partly true misleading, or even straight-up false language about others is a pretty common way for most humans to act on their discontentedness. In the ninth commandment, it's asking us not to do that. I really appreciate the way the Heidelberg Catechism talks about the ninth commandment. It asks confirmands, what is required in the ninth commandment? And the prescribed answer is, that I never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Rather, in court and everyone else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind. These are the very devices the devil uses and would call down God's intense wrath. I should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. The ninth commandment, in asking us not to give false testimony against our neighbor, it's asking us to guard the good name of those around us. Now, it's not asking us to avoid dealing with other shortcomings and failures, but it is saying that things like gossip, slander, condemning others without actually knowing the facts, and misconstruing people's words and actions, they should have no place with the people of God. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Now in this series, we've been talking about how these Ten Commandments are not stuffy old rules meant to ruin our fun, but are instead are a part of God's wisdom that actually free us to live the good life. And the Ninth Commandment could not be more clear in how it does that. Just think about what it would be like to try and live in the environment of Ahab. If you don't give in to what Ahab wants, he'll just ruin your reputation. 
maybe even bring false charges and have you killed. You share how you're feeling about something, and before you know it, things that were said in confidence are being used as leverage over you. No one wants to exist in that kind of environment because false testimony, it always does three things. False testimony, it always ruins trust. Gossip, slander, twisting other people's words, these things do not lead to friendships where we feel like we can trust one another. False testimony, it always keeps us from being vulnerable with each other. When false testimony starts, it makes us guard our thoughts and feelings so that they don't get used against us. There's no emotional closeness possible with false testimony. And ultimately, false testimony, it always kills relationships and community. I don't know about you, but that type of world may be fun to watch on TV, but it's not one that I want to be a part of. And it's actually not one we're created for. We are created to have trusting, vulnerable, meaningful relationships. It's in that context that we thrive. And false testimony, it kills that. There is freedom in genuine community. And false testimony makes that impossible. So what are we to do with this? Well, let me give you three thoughts here. First, if you find that you've been a perpetrator of false testimony, like most of us have been at some point, please know that in Jesus there is forgiveness. And while it does take time to rebuild trust, the church is a place for us to grow in that. Second, let me encourage you all to adopt this attitude to help us prevent the spread of false testimony. That is, even if I don't like you, your reputation is worth protecting. A foundational verse for Christians as we pursue being Christ-like is uh, Romans 5.8, which says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The way that God has treated us in Christ is not dependent upon the way that we treated him. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. And as Christians, when someone treats us badly or double-crosses us, it does not give us an excuse to manipulate the truth to damage their reputation. In other words, just because they hurt you doesn't mean that we should feel empowered to hurt them. Finally, let me encourage you to adopt this attitude as well. I'll be okay if things don't go exactly the way I want them to. Ahab's initial issue was that he let the fact that he didn't get what he wanted drive him to discontentedness and despair, which wrongly justified his and Jezebel's false testimony. He thought, if I don't get what I want and the way I want it, my life is not complete. All of this led him and Jezebel to destroy Naboth. Hey, sometimes we just don't get what we want. That's not an excuse to use your words to damage someone else's reputation. 
even if they're the one who's keeping you from getting what you want. Church, false testimony, it always ruins community. So let us avoid it and seek to protect each other's reputations, even if we don't like each other all the time. Let's pray. God, thank you for this chance to read these stories and to think about this commandment. Your teachings are wise. They give us direction on how we should try and live. So Lord, give us wisdom to identify when we're engaging in language that we shouldn't be. Help us have the self-discipline to protect each other's reputations. Lord, help us be the type of community where we thrive with trust and vulnerability and not one where we're worried about others trying to manipulate the truth to ruin us. We ask this in your name. Amen.